this. I want to take, take our time, but we're not going to go on and on and on forever. There will be some portions of it that we uh, just cover in a block because they, they do repeat. But uh, the first part of Revelation, the first four chapters are the key. If you don't get what's happening in the first four chapters, the rest of it will not make sense to you. It'll just become some weird and wonderful thing that, uh, that you won't understand. And that, that's probably the position most of us are in with the book of Revelation. We just have no understanding of what's going on there, so we just ignore it. But we ignore it to our peril. Because it's the only book in the Bible where there's a blessing for reading it and a, and a, and a not a curse, but a, a, a pronouncement of bad things if you, if you ignore it. It's actually an important book. It has so much in it for the, for the development of our lives and so much in it for the health of our Christianity as churches and as individuals. So it's important we get a good hold of it, particularly the first four chapters because they set the scene. The first four chapters really tell the story. The rest of it then just is the outworking of what the first four chapters are talking about. So we're up now to chapter 2. In Revelation chapter 1, we've had a picture of Jesus, of his churches. It has a picture of seven lampstands and Jesus standing in the middle. And he tells us very, very clearly what those seven lampstands are. They are the seven churches. Seven being a, a, not, not, a, not a number for, a, for particular churches necessarily, but it uses seven in the, in the, in the Jewish understanding of it, of completeness. The, all of the churches. Jesus standing in the midst of all of the churches. So we need to understand that Jesus is in our midst. Whether you feel him, see him or not, he is standing in the midst of his church. Whether you see things happening or not, he is standing in the midst of his church. And in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 now, we have his message to this church he's standing in the midst of. And he's wanting us, he's wanting them, and he's wanting us to understand some very, very important things. And he tells them, first of all, that he knows them. He tells us, first of all, not only is he standing in our midst, not only is he very present with us, he knows us. He knows us through and through. He knows us better than we know ourselves. Scary thought, isn't it? Nothing escapes his gaze. We think, like David with Bathsheba, you know, he thought he had got away with it. And the the little phrase comes in at the end there, but God saw. (laughs) Nobody else saw. David did it in the dark so no one could see, but God saw. Nothing escapes his gaze. Not only now does he tell us that he knows us or he knows them, he now goes on to tell them he knows their deeds. He says, I know your deeds. I know what you're up to. I know what you're doing. I know the good, I know the bad. Sometimes we take that just negatively, but you need to understand God also knows everything good you have done. And sometimes you can think nobody knows, nobody understands, nobody sees what I'm doing, what a waste of time. But you need to understand God knows. He sees. He knows and he appreciates everything you have done on his behalf. Nothing escapes his notice. People might not notice, but God does. Isn't that exciting? How many times you thought, nobody knows, nobody cares, what's the point? The thing is, who are we doing it for? 
Who are we doing it for? Are we doing it for people or are we doing it for God? If we're doing it for God, then whether people see it or not doesn't matter. It's who we're doing it for. So he tells them he knows them. He tells them he knows their deeds. He knows their works. He knows everything about us. He knows who we are. He knows what we are doing. And he knows why. He knows our motives. So you can be doing the right thing with the wrong motives and he knows that too. Everyone else thinks you're marvellous and he knows down underneath it's not so great after all. Or you might be doing the wrong thing with the right motives and everybody is looking down on you and saying, what a useless, what a bad thing to do. And he sees the heart and he knows. You might have blown it on the outside, but on the inside is a beautiful heart. People don't see that stuff, but God does. He knows. So we're going to look now at the, the first letter that we started to look at last time in more detail in chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. We're going to see exactly what Jesus says to them. What does he see and what does he know? Let's read it, Ephesians 2, 1 to 7. To the angel of the church at Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven gold lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered, and you've endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary. Now, that's pretty amazing. You don't hold this against you. You've forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor, you hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I'll give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now what we find in each one of these letters is a, 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 a series of things that they are doing well or not doing well. And if we put all the letters together, we basically have us. In some shape or form, we have our church, we have other churches, we have our individual lives. We have Christianity pretty much encapsulated in these seven letters. So there's a bit of us in each one of these letters, whether we like it or not. You'll actually find it fits pretty well. So what in this passage, what in this letter fits us? Let's look at it a little bit more carefully. First of all, Ephesus. The church in Ephesus as we said last time, was an important church in the early Christian time. Probably it was the mega church of the first century. Now, there wasn't any such thing as a mega church because they had church different. They, they, were, they were house churches in those days. They didn't have big buildings, uh, temples where everybody gathered or church buildings like this where everyone gathered. They didn't have services like we have and worship teams that practiced on Thursday night and then 8 o'clock Thursday morning, and then did their thing. They didn't have that. They didn't have what we do. So church in those days didn't look like church now. But when you took all of those family churches together, those house churches together, the, Ephesus, the Ephesian church was huge. Paul had spent nearly a year there establishing it. If we go into the book of Acts, which we haven't got time to do this morning, you'll see that Paul's time in Ephesus was amazing. There was a revival there, a huge revival. The, 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 the Ephesus as a city was, was steeped in witchcraft. 
And we see an amazing revival. We see people coming out of witchcraft. We see them burning their books. Millions of dollars worth of stuff was burnt after that revival. There's, there were people being dramatically saved. And it all happened out of, out of Paul getting so fed up with a girl who was demon-possessed that he cast the demon out of her and she couldn't tell the future anymore. And, and the people she was serving got annoyed with this because that was their, their livelihood gone. And they dragged Paul before the, before the judges and he was beaten to a pulp and put in jail. You know the story. Paul saw revival in Ephesus. Amazing revival. That was Philippi where he was put in jail. But there was a a riot in Ephesus, a huge riot, and Paul was actually taken out so he couldn't be torn apart. But there was a, there was a, a huge revival there. People saved all over the place. Hundreds, probably thousands. The place was turned upside down. This was no small church, no insignificant church. Ephesus as a city was one of the great cities of the ancient world. Its trade, its travel, its politics, its religion, it was a huge seaport. It was a, it was a very significant place. It was world famous for the temple of Artemis or, or Diana. Remember, that was what they were, the, the, the uh, people from the trades were upset about, that the, the, their, their little idols that they were making were, were not being bought anymore. And this big crowd, all the crowd got together and they're crying out, great as, great as Diana of the Ephesians. You know, they just went on and on and on and on. It was, a, it was a riot. This temple was huge, one of the seven wonders of the world, they reckon. And as I said before, the church was possibly the most influential in the century of the time. But like Hillsong, but not in nature, an influence. So what was this church doing well? Let's start there. Verse 2 and 3. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You've persevered and endured endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. And in verse 6, you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, let's look at those things for a minute. He says, I know your deeds. I know your hard work. This was not a lazy church. These people were working hard for the cause of the kingdom. If Jesus says they're working hard, they're working hard. He says, I know your perseverance. Now, that word perseverance just doesn't mean putting up with stuff. It's a a different word. It's, It's not passive resistance. It's active resistance. I know you are standing firm against that which is evil. You are not being pushed around. You are standing for that which is right. Perseverance is the main Christian virtue right throughout Revelation. You'll find it comes up over and over again. God says, I see your perseverance. This is the perseverance of the saints. The word is repeated over and over. It's it's a virtue that Jesus is commending all the way through. It's something he's trying to encourage us in as Christians. And they had it. They had it in spades. I know your perseverance. You cannot tolerate evil people. They were standing against evil. So they understood right and wrong. They knew their Bible, people. They knew their Bible front to back. They, even though they didn't have one, they knew their Old Testament. They knew what they believed. 
These were not unknowledgeable people. They could work out what was right and what was wrong. A false teacher came through and they could work out that the teaching was false because they knew the truth. These people knew the truth. They tested false prophets and found them to be false. They weren't sucked in easily. They persevered persevered and endured hardships for Christ's name, so they'd suffered. They'd suffered for what they believed, and they'd stood firm. Amen. This is some church. Wish we had some churches like this, wouldn't you think? They've not grown weary, so they haven't given up either. They just keep going. They have kept going. They've stood strong. They've stood firm. They've stood in the truth. They've stood for the truth. They knew the truth. And then he commends them, for they hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, and no one really knows who they were. But if you take the word Nicolaitan and you divide it up into its, into its two bits, Nikeo means to conquer, and Laos means people, to conquer people. So there were people going around who were, who were conquering or, 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 or dominating people, controlling people, and we've had that in churches as well. Dominating and controlling pastors who, who manipulate and control and people within our churches that manipulate and control. It's a very human tendency. And this group, we, we seem to think we're a bit like that and yet they themselves were living a permissive lifestyle. They were controlling other people but they were doing what they liked. Quite typical. So under the banner of Christian freedom, they were able to do what they liked, but they were manipulating, controlling other people and making them fit into their mold. So they stood against these people as well. Now this church was really doing some excellent stuff, wouldn't you reckon? You know, if you, if you saw this on a CV, you'd think, man, that's a church I want to go to. You know, they've really got it. This church has it together. They really have what it takes. They are being the church. They are standing up. They are strong. They They are doing a good work. This is a church to be emulated. You should write a book about them. This is real success. They were large. They were influential. And they were doing all this stuff. But he says, I know you. And I know your deeds. So what else does he know about them? Let's look at verse 4 and verse 5. Yet I hold this against you. Now you don't really want Jesus to be saying something like that to you. Not a great commendation. I hold this against you. I've never had God say that to me. I've told him all the things he should have against me. And he's told me, I don't have anything against you. But he says to this church, I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. This is this great church he's talking to. And you'd see on the outside, you'd see nothing fallen at all. You'd just see success. He says, remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent. And do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. This is serious stuff. Where's Jesus standing? In the midst of the lampstands. What are the lampstands? His churches. And he says, if you don't repent, you will be removed from where I am. (sighs) 
They've done so well in so many external things. And yet, this is a big yet, they've drifted away from the one thing that marks out Christians as being Christians. Jesus said you didn't, they will not know, Jesus did not say they will know you by the way you stand against evil. He did not say they will know you by the way that you know the truth. He did not say they will know you by the way that you know your Bible. He did not say I, they, they, will know, they will know you're Christians by, by the fact that you stand against evil. He did not say they will know you're Christians by the way that you test false prophets and see whether they're true or not. He says, they will know you are Christians. They will know you belong to me by your love. The one thing that marks out Christians from anyone else on this planet is love, real love, God kind of love. They'd forsaken, they had left, they had turned away from, they had moved away from their first love. Let's go to Matthew 12 for a minute. What does that really mean? I'm sorry, Mark 12. Got your Bibles turned there. It's good to see it rather than just hear it. Mark 12, 30 to 31. I didn't put it on there on purpose, so you've got to look at it. guy had come to Jesus and said, what are the two, what is, what is the greatest commandment? In verse 29, the most important one answered Jesus is this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. In verse 31, he doesn't finish there, he says the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Love. Love for God. Love for your neighbor. And Jesus says to this church in Ephesus, you have forsaken your first love. You have gone away from love for God, and you've gone away from love for your neighbor. You have become a people of action, but you have ceased to become a people of love. And because of that, you have ceased to become a church. A church is not defined by what it does. A church is defined by who it is. We as Christians are not defined by what we do for God. We are defined by who we are before God, by our relationship with Him and by our relationship with people. That defines us. And He says, you have forsaken, you have left your first love, love for God, Love for people. Let's go to John 13, 34. Jesus said, A new commandment I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. So must you love one another. He doesn't say this is a good idea. This is a good suggestion. He says, A new commandment I give you. Love one another. Now, there aren't very many commandments Jesus gives us. But he does give us this one. You are, you are defined 
by your love for God and for one another. If that is absent, you have no definition anymore. It's rather interesting, but passion for the truth can generate into an unloving witch hunt against all things that are false. I've seen it so many, so many times. I, I, I uh, was involved in a certain church one stage, and you know the word was everything. But my goodness me, there was no love attached to it. It was cold. It was ruthless. And if you put one foot out of line, you were kicked out the door. You know, a girl gets pregnant out of wedlock and she's marched out of church. But he said, you will be known by your love, not by your adherence to rigid lifestyle. And someone once said, every virtue carries within itself the seeds of its own destruction. Even love carries within itself the seeds of its own destruction, you know, because if you take that too far, you get licensed. Now, this church had taken their stand on the truth so far that they had moved away from love and they had just become robots of truth. And they became the, the, the guard dogs of the church and they would be running around telling people what they were doing wrong and you're, getting, you're, you're out, you can't stay, you, you're this, you're that. We're all seen it, eh? Well, if you're my age, you will have seen it because in, when I was a young Christian, it was, it was rife. It was everywhere. They'd watchdogs of the assembly and they'd, they'd be the ones who'd rat on you. What a filthy atmosphere to be in. Yuck. I don't want to be in a church like that. I don't want to be in this church if this church is like that. Seriously. We are here to love one another. We are here to love God. We are here to love others. Yes, we are here to, to, to follow the truth. Yes, the Word of God is important, but how we apply that and how we action it must be through love first. How did Jesus deal with the woman at the well? That's our example. He didn't go to the well and say, you dirty, dirty lady. You naughty, naughty woman. You have done this and you've done this and you've done this and you've done this and I can't touch your water. If I touched anything you touched, I'd become unclean. What does he do? He goes to the woman knowing what she was and he says, give me a drink. Yeah, I know that in you touching the water it becomes unclean, but I love you. God loves you. He ministered to her in a, in a way that we would, we would we, we totally unexpect because we would, we would look at what she was, we would look at what she was doing, and we would avoid her. But he, out of love, reached out to her. Now, he didn't negate what she was doing because it got to the point where he said, gave a little, little hint. He said, well, just go and get your husband she said, well, actually, I haven't got one. And what he knows comes out now. He says, that's true. What you've said is true. You haven't got one. You've had five. 
and the one you're with now isn't your husband. But in that, he didn't condemn her. He just told the truth as he saw it. And she went away and she told the people in the village, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. And the village people came back and got saved. Do you know in that story he never even told her to repent? He's not, that's not saying she shouldn't. It's just saying he didn't tell her at that point. We don't know what happened afterwards. But the point is that love won the day. Love is what defines us. Truth on its own takes us into being Corinthians 13. The love chapter, read at most weddings, whether people are Christians or not. Because we like it. We like what it says, and we should like what it says, because it's truth. First Corinthians 13, I can't even find Corinthians, there it is. Now Paul says, I'll show you the most excellent way. He's just been talking about the gifts of the Spirit, how good they are, how important they are, particularly the gift of prophecy. And then he says, but now I'll show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but don't have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, it doesn't envy, it's not boast, it doesn't boast, it's not proud, it's not rude, it's not self-seeking, that counsels most of us out already. It's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres, love never fails. And he talks about all the things that we would do. One day they will pass away, but love will never pass away. Love is the center of our faith. Without genuine love, all of our works are just a noise. So here we have this Ephesians church doing all of the outward works, not with love, and they had just become a noise. Not just a noise, but a bad noise. You know, an annoying noise. What's an annoying noise? <coughs> a kid screaming, a kid crying, a kid nagging, someone putting their fingernails down the blackboard. <coughs> That's what they had become without love. What looked good was just an annoying noise to God. And it says in verse 5, remember the height from which you have fallen. And things that people see, but a height in the heart. Something had fallen in the heart, and he says, remember the height from which you've fallen. You have fallen, people. You don't look like it. No one would know it, but I know. I stand in the midst, and I see and there's something's happened in the heart, and it's not good. The challenge to them as a church is to go back to what they did at first. 
get your priorities right. Get your eyes off other people and get your eyes back onto God. They really needed to get on a pilgrim's progress again and go back to where they started. It's interesting, this, in, the, in the Old Testament, there's, there's very many, many stories where, where people would walk physically on a journey and God would take them back to where they started. Abraham went various places and sort of got off track a little bit and it, God, and he, and it said he went back to the altar he built at first. They always went back to that place where they started and sometimes I think it's a good idea for us Christians to go back to where we first started. Where did we start our Christian life? How did we start it? What was it that impacted, made an impact on us? Where, what, what, what did we have right at the beginning? We didn't have much knowledge of the Bible. We didn't have much, many works to put in our belt and say, haven't I done well? We had none of that, but we had a love for God which was for Him. Remember those days? You know, if there was a meeting on, you were there. We would drive six hours to go to a meeting. We'd drive six hours to get a hamburger too, but that's another story. <laughs> we, we, just that, that first love. Do you remember that first love? And, and, and you didn't really, didn't really notice what other people did because it's just, oh. It was your devotion to God and, and you just couldn't get out of the Bible. You just wanted to read it all the time. And, and you'd read it and God would speak to you from it. Oh, wow. How long has it been since that happened? First love. Go back to the cross. Go back to the em empty tomb where love was first kindled and let love be born anew. That's what he said to them. He said, oh, remember from where you've fallen, go back. Go back to that first place. Go back to that place where love was everything. Okay, you've learned some stuff along the way and none of that stuff is wrong. It's all good stuff, but in learning that stuff, you've let go of the important. And you've not become people who are desirable anymore. You've become people who are, who, who are, who are legalistic. And what was the consequence? Verse 5. I never thought I'd hear this said about a church, particularly one that was doing so well. He says, remember the height from which you have fallen, repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. And what we need to understand is the church can't continue on a loveless course. Eventually, as I said before, it ceases to be a church. A church that doesn't love isn't a church anymore. It's just an organization. It might be a very good-looking organization. It might do some good things. But if there's no love at the center of it, it ceases to be a church because the very definition of church is one who loves. If you don't repent, he said, I'll come and remove your lampstand from its place. And if you are here last time, you'll remember I said to you, the sad thing is that in Ephesus today, you will hardly find a Christian. There's definitely not a church there. The lampstand's gone. The mega church of the day no longer exists. I've seen churches come and go too in my time. In New Zealand, churches of thousands no longer exist. 
don't even have a name, don't even have a, 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 a little peg in the ground to say they were there, just gone. It doesn't take much for a lampstand to be removed. What keeps our lampstand in its place is what we're here for. We're here out of love. We're here to love God and we're here to love people. And in loving God and loving people, we may do some, muck some things up along the way and we may not do some things quite right, but you know what? God can overlook that stuff, but he can't overlook a church that's loveless. Love must be the center of everything we do. We do a, a, a pantry in the community because we love the community, not because we want to be seen to be doing a pantry. You get the difference? We have a worship team because we love God and we love to worship, not because we can be seen to have good musicians. But we get the balance out of kilter very so, so easily. We look at what someone else is doing and they, they, they're successful and we want to be successful. So we have to do what they're doing. What are we then doing? We're chasing what? Success, not God. We were never called to be successful. We were never called to be big. We were never called, and there's nothing wrong with any of those things. But that's not what we're here for. We're not here for the outward stuff. We're here for the heart. It's love that drives us, love that motivates us. Everything we do comes out of love. If we're not doing it out of love, then it's worthless. So if I'm here preaching this morning and I'm doing it just to put on a show, then it's a waste of time. It's just a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal, and you might think it is anyway. <laughs> but you know what? If the heart motivation is love, it can be less than polished, less than outwardly good, and yet it pleases the heart of God. We used to have a, I've told you this before, we used to have a guy in our church who couldn't sing in tune to save himself. He was dreadful. You all used to find the other, you know, if he sat here, you'd sit over there. And when he clapped, it was always off time. Always off time. Always, always a beat missing. Dreadful. And he, he, he had a shocking voice, and he sang the loudest. And you know what? I reckon God was happy. I reckon God loved it. Because, in it. But God loved it. Because we look at the external stuff and we just want everything nice and pretty and in its place. And we want everything to be just, be just so. And God doesn't care about just so. He cares about the heart. Now, I'm not saying we should have everything amiss, and we're not saying we should not have good musicians, and I'm not saying we should all now sing out a tune and clap all wrong. I'm not saying that. All I'm saying is the heart is what's important. And if the heart is good, the rest of it's good. If the heart's not good, it doesn't matter how good. I think I'm making my point. I'm getting it anyway. Yeah, I reckon. Sometimes it's good if it's a joyful good noise. And in verse 7, we've got a promise to them. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear not what the Spirit says to the Ephesians, what the Spirit says to the churches, which includes us. We are all, it's so easy. 
as a pastor, it's so easy for me to go that way, to start to look at the external things, to concentrate on what's on the outside, to look at the building, to look at the, 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 the structure, to look at the, the organization, to look at the finances, to look at the worship, to look at the this and that and the other thing, and to forget what we're actually all about anyway. We're here to love God and love people, and that's it. And you know what? People get hurt in churches because we forget that. We forget that we're actually here for people. You know, if God was here this morning, he'd say, stuff your organization. Maybe he wouldn't use that word. But I think God's a bit like me. Maybe he might. He said, that really means little to me. What about the people that are in the organization? He'd say, stuff your building. What about the people who come to the building? What about that person that you've never spoken to? What about that person who sits on the other side and you don't even know their name yet? We could go for a little test this morning, couldn't we? How many names do you know in here? Are there people who have been coming here for two years and you don't know them yet? I bet there are. I bet there are, and that happens because we get out, and I'm not putting you down if that's the case, because all of us could say that's us, but that happens because we get our eyes off the real reason we are here onto other things. We can become all sorts of reasons, because there's a need in our lives, but we've got to realize that actually it's all about people. I forget this just the same way as you do. I sit on a plane and I don't want to sit next to a person. (laughs) I've even prayed that no one would sit in that seat next to me. (laughs) Because I just want some time out. I just, I just. And the last thing I want is someone who talks to me. No one's brave enough. You're all like me. I reckon. No, some of you aren't. Some of you love talking to people on planes. You know, every now and again, I forget what I am. It becomes all about me, and I forget that really I'm here to love. I'm here to love people. Every now and again, I become the priest and the Levite and the Good Samaritan story. Because quite frankly, I'm just too busy and I can't be bothered this morning. I'm acknowledging that, because I know I'm just the same as you. We forget that actually it's all about people. And, And it's not whether they conform to what they should be or not. It's not whether they do the things we think they should do. It's not whether they look right or smell right or taste right or anything right. It's the fact that they are people and God loves them and we are here to love. And often our relationship with God gets, a what can, it gets into what can you do for me. See, we, we sang that you are good, you are good song. Now, there's a part in it, there's nothing wrong with it, but it says you're never going to let me down. Now, I guarantee we sing that with the thought that, God, I want you to do this for me. And I know you'll never let me down. Do you know what? That's bad theology. Because God's not going to do stuff for you. 
<laughs> Isn't he? No. He does the third. So if he does things for us, it's because what we're doing fits into the kingdom. If you are out of the pathway of the kingdom, he's not going to bless that pathway. It's just not going to happen. Oh God, I'm 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 sleeping with this girl, and I want you to I want you to her to say yes when I ask her to marry me. Well, you've actually got things out of order. If you're not living right, then how is he going to bless that wrong relationship? Ain't going to happen. And then when it all falls apart, oh God, let me down. No, he didn't. You let you down. So we've got to be careful about our relationship with God. What kind of a relationship with it? Is it a relationship where I love you, God, and it doesn't matter what you do, it doesn't matter what you say, it doesn't matter what your word says, I love you, and I follow you. Is that the kind of relationship we have with God? Because that's real love. And it finishes off with just something that's rather interesting. He says, to him who overcomes, I'll give the right to eat from the tree of life. Now, you know the tree of life was in the Garden of Eden. And when Adam and Eve fell, the, 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 the uh, angel was put in the place to guard the tree of life so that they couldn't eat from it. In other words, what you have will become permanent. So if you get this right, that love that's at the base of your life will become permanent. It will be yours forever. You'll take it into eternity with you. The angel will be set to one side and you'll be able to eat from the tree of life. You'll have permanent love. It'll never fall away. But there's an interesting word, mean tree. It's not used, it's not translated tree normally normally they'd use a word dendron but he uses zulon so he wanted to say actually literal tree he would have used dendron but he actually used a word that's not translated tree it's translated wood and that same word is used in 1 Peter 2.24 and I think what he's really saying here, he's, using, he's not made a mistake, he's using a word that is actually linked with the cross because he's saying, people, the way back is the way of the cross. The cross has to be central to our lives. We always have to come back to the cross. Everything we are, everything we have comes back to the cross. Who we are comes back to the cross. And it's so easy to, for everything to start to become about what we are and what we do and what we have done and what we have accomplished. But I tell you what, that's worth nothing unless it's coming from the cross. See, it's what he has done. It's what he is. It's what he accomplishes that's important. And we make it all about us and it's not about us. That's why when Joshua came to the finishing off now. That's when Joshua came to the, to, to the Red Sea when he, was go, to when he was coming to Jericho, sorry, and they were going to overpower Jericho or, or come against Jericho, probably the Lord Jesus Christ. And, he, and the angel of the Lord was there with his sword and armor on, and he said to the angel of the Lord, are you for us or are you for them? And the angel of the Lord said, neither. You've got it all wrong, Joshua. 
It's not about you. It's not about them. It's about me. I am here for me. God. God is center. It's not about where you fit. It's about where he fits. The cross has to be at the center of our lives. Everything we do comes from what Jesus has done for us. Everything we do is for him. So it's so easy to do your things that can be seen by people and yet neglect the things that people don't see. So you don't know whether I pray or not, do you? You haven't the faintest idea. You don't know whether I read my Bible or not. I can, I can fake it till the cows come. I am a professional faker. I can do that. But what use would that be to anybody? What use would it be if I just go into the professional mode and do my thing? It's worthless. So I have to always come back to that place of the cross. I have to come back to my relationship with back to my relationship with people. Why am I doing what I am doing? What's it all about? Who's it for? Love. See, we can look at the programs, the services, the activities, the projects. They're all important, but without love, they're nothing. Love God. Love others. Serve God out of that motivation of love. Play the keyboard out of that end of love. You know, if you're just playing the drums to make a noise, you're just making a noise. It might be a very skillful noise, but it's just a noise. It doesn't touch the heart of God one little bit. And it definitely doesn't worry the devil. But if Jesus is at the center of everything we do, not only does it touch the heart of God, it scares the living daylights out of the devil because he can't stand against a people who are motivated by love. Let's stand together. That, that refrain that we sang before, you are good. You are good. You are good. Good. Oh, you are good. Good. Oh, who is good? He is. You are good. something else and, and we understand that it's time to come back to the cross and as we sing this together this morning if, if that's you and I don't want you to feel condemned if it's you this is where this is where we come before God and we say God I've fallen I've gone off track a bit but Lord I want to come back on track 
if you want to come back on track this morning, I just want you to do something brave. I want you to come and stand at the front here and say, God, that's me. That's me. Lord, I humble myself before you. And I say, God, accept me back to the, to the place of the cross. Accept me back to that place where you are first. You are number one. It's not about me. It's not about what I do. It's not about anything on the external. It's about my relationship with you and that love expressed to other people. So as we sing this morning, if, if, if you want this opportunity just before we go home this morning, let's sing.
standing in our midst this morning with a, with a thing of condemnation. You're not pointing the finger. Out of a heart of love, you are drawing us back to love. And Lord, we just pray that you would draw us back to the center. Lord, may all we do come out of the center. May it come out of a center of relationship with you, out of love for you, out of appreciation for you, out of desire for you. Lord, we come back to that center of relationship this morning. We say, Lord, God, keep us there. Help us to keep there. Help us to keep our eyes on you. Help us to focus on you. Help us to love you. Help us to love. Lord, may it be said about us, they knew they were Christians by their love. Lord, let that be the mark of who we are. Let that be the mark of what we are. Let that be the mark of, of, of the church in Dunedin, no matter what it has, name it has on the door, that we would be places, we would be people who love, love you, love people. We ask that in Jesus' wonderful name. Lord, I pray your blessing upon those who have responded this morning. This is about, this is just about a gentle moving back to where we belong. Lord, draw us back, we pray, in Jesus' name. You can be seated. Thank you. Often you might wonder, why do we do that? Why, why get people to come and stand at the front and stuff? I've always found there's something about moving. You can agree with what I said and stay back there. But I tell you what, when you move and you respond, something happens in your heart that won't happen by you just staying where you are. And those who've responded this morning, something will have happened in their hearts. God will have met them in a way that, in, in, in an unusual way, he will not meet you where you are. Because there needs to be an action to it. He said to that church, repent. That means turn around, show that it's changed. So that little thing we did, it's not a Pentecostal hoo-ha thing. It's actually important. It's important that we respond. I want you to get into the habit of being responsive people. I want you to be in the habit of responding during the worship. Not just letting other people do it, but, but responding. I want you to get into the habit. If there's, a, if there's an opportunity like we had this morning, take it. When I was a new Christian, I was on every altar call, whether it applied to me or not, because I just wanted to be there. You know, I, I just wanted God to touch me. God loves that stuff. He doesn't care if you've responded for the wrong reason. As long as there's a response, that's all God gets, uh, gets, gets, wants. But we get professional non-responders, you know. Everything's good. I'm good. We're good. God's good, and it's not good. And you know it's not good, we, we, don't we? Let's become responsive people. Heart soft before God. God, I want everything you've got. Father, I just pray that as we go from this place this morning, we'd go with your love and your joy and your peace in our hearts. And forgive me for lying that I said I'd finish by 11.30 and I didn't. Amen.